You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David. <clears throat> Worship team, welcome to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time, we extend to you a special welcome. I want to tell you that our church is going through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And this morning, we'll find ourselves in Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. If this is your first time at Grace, and you have not checked out any of the recent sermons online, then you could find the topic this morning very interesting and very confusing. If you have been coming to Grace for 25 plus years, you may find the topic this morning very interesting and very confusing, or both. This is a good time to say a few things about our relationship with Scripture, both as a church and in our individual lives. How should God's Word be treated, both on Sunday mornings and in our personal reading and devotions? Daniel 9, 24 to 27, or the latter half of our text this morning, is one of the most obscure texts in Scripture. Obscure meaning difficult to understand, not unknown. Oh, believe you me, it is well known. In the first service, I said a lot of commentaries, when commentaries, commentators get to difficult portions of Scriptures, Scripture, I'm really excited, looking forward to seeing what they're going to say, and then they just skip it. It's, I mean, as if the verses aren't even there. You would be surprised how often that happens. It might be the opposite problem in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. Too much ink has been spilled about this text. Everyone... <clears throat> recognizes it's an important text and a controversial text. So why preach from a text that is controversial? For starters, <clears throat> I would tell you that I would not. If I didn't preach through certain books of the Bible, then I would never get to texts that are important for us to understand and know. And this would be first among equals, I can assure you. Second, <clears throat> Every system of eschatology, I'll define that in a moment. Every system of eschatology <clears throat> understands, recognizes that Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is extremely important in our understanding of the last days. And with all of that in mind, here's a question that I'll ask again a little bit later. Is it wise to base so much of one's doctrine on such an obscure text. For those of you, again, who are relatively new to grace, there are two words I want to explain up front. You should have a handout in your bulletin, <clears throat> and this information will be there. Eschatology and apocalyptic are the two words. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end times. It's the study of the last days. In some senses, we've been living in the last days ever since Jesus ascended back to heaven after his death and resurrection. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.14, a verse that we looked at not long ago. Children, it is the last hour, and so you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And now 
many antichrists have come. They have already come. Therefore, know that this is the last hour. So when someone says, you think we're living in the last days? You say, oh yeah, oh yeah. We have been for 2,000 years. And every generation expects the Lord's return as it should be. That's according to design. The second word to know is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is a genre of literature that Bible students employ to point to the end times. Apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means unveiling or revelation, as in the revelation or the apocalypsis of apocalypse of Jesus Christ that we know as revelation. So the two places in the power in, in the Bible where apocalyptic literature are most prominent are in the Old Testament book of Daniel and the New Testament book of Revelation. Apocalyptic uses symbols to point to the end of periods or of difficulty for God's people and to the return of Christ. So the two themes of judgment and redemption are prominent in apocalyptic literature. Today's text, Daniel 9, 20 through 27, is probably, I've got probably written, but look, it is without doubt the most difficult text I have wrestled with in the 25 plus years that I've been here preaching at Grace. In my estimation, anyone who is certain that he or she knows the full story of what God is communicating in this text has either A, not studied different interpretations of others who were just as godly, just as scholarly, and just as committed to Jesus' return as they are, or B, is arrogant even if unintentionally so. I am shocked at how many commentators on this text write their commentary as if it is settled. Everybody believes this. Come on. You can see it as plain as day. And if you read 10 commentaries, you will get 10, and I promise you, 10 different interpretations. Many of them may be similar in a lot of places, but there are going to be minor differences in all of those. Um, I could be arrogant in saying you can't know for sure because the angel Gabriel came to Daniel and said, I'm here to give you understanding, Daniel. And then he goes on to tell this very complex truth from God. As is so often the case, our desire to know the details of prophecy or a particular prophecy can easily obstruct the most important facets of the truth. And the most important truth in all scripture is Jesus. And it's easy to miss the very one we're longing to see by getting lost in the details. The big question in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which is, again, the latter part of our text, is what is meant by the 70 weeks that the angel Gabriel told Daniel are determined. These 70 weeks, he said, are determined for God's people and for Jerusalem. So we may as well just go ahead and jump into the deep end. 
well, actually, we're going to start in the shallow end. And then, you know, when you're trying to get from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool and you're walking and you can't go, we'll go as fast as we can because the water is going to be working against us. The first part of our text, Daniel 9, verses 20 to 23, will be our initial reading. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, Yahweh my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in the prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, and be seated. Do you remember the context for these four verses? Do you remember from last week, Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19? The prophet prayed with deep contrition of heart and a spirit of repentance for his own sins. We don't even think about Daniel being a sinner hardly at all. Daniel and Joseph, of all the characters in the Old Testament, you think of them as always standing, always. But Daniel prayed for his own sins and for the sins of the people of Israel. <clears throat> The rest of the, of the chapter, after verse 19, is God's response to Daniel's plea for mercy for the people. Daniel had been reading in the book of Jeremiah, you recall from last week, and he realized that the 70 years of captivity that had been decreed were nearly done, but the people were continuing to sin in ways that had caused God to send them into captivity in the first, first place. Thus, Daniel prayed for mercy. The instant Daniel began to pray, Gabriel was sent to comfort, encourage, and instruct him. That should encourage us to pray. Notice that Daniel was aware of the time that Gabriel arrived at the evening sacrifice. Now think about this. 67 years earlier, Daniel had been dragged, possibly in chains, possibly marching in a line, completely naked, in chains, because that's the way they did it to humiliate captives, to Babylon. And for 67 years, he had not seen his homeland at all. Not only that, 51 years earlier, the temple had been destroyed in 587 B.C. Daniel, even so, was still committed to liturgical reading and prayers. Surprisingly, this is going to really surprise you, Daniel had not spent any time going to prophecy conferences or watching, you know, the prophetic kind of preachers on TV. He didn't know any of that. He was just reading the word and the Lord came to him 
when he, as he was reading at the prescribed times. What a good word for us. So as our days become increasingly difficult, we should spend more time studying theology, not less. If you're consumed with understanding the times and seeking to determine exactly when Jesus will return, you're in the danger of missing the beauty and glory of our triune God, of God's beautiful work in our lives through justification, God's aseity or his self-sufficiency. This God who was one and complete in himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect communion, did not need us to be fulfilled. And yet, he created us and loved us enough when we fell to redeem us by sending his Son to die. Do not miss who Jesus is, this Jesus, because you're spending most of your time trying to discern when he will come back for a second time to the earth. How encouraging it must have been for Daniel to hear that God had answered his prayer because he was greatly loved by Yahweh. Yahweh. The writers connected Yahweh with Jesus, the New Testament writers. And the same is true for you. Whenever you pray, if you belong to Jesus, you are greatly loved. Because when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And he's pleased. That's good to know as we come to verse 24, which is the start of the deep end. As in, we are going from three feet to 300 feet in two steps. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Almost everyone agrees that a week represents a period of seven years, thus 70 groups of 70 weeks, or, or excuse me, 70 groups of seven years or 490 years total are decreed. As we're going to see in these next two verses, these weeks are divided into three sections, and some really bad things are going to happen in these seven-year periods. If you already have an opinion about these verses, um, you might be surprised to know that some people think that these years or the, these weeks or years, periods of years, are symbolic, while others think they're very much literal. They have a beginning date and an end date, or maybe a beginning date, an end date, and then another date. Um, you might be Scandalized, in fact, to think that some people see this differently than you do. More about all of that in the next two verses. For now, notice that there are six blessings that God will give to his people. The first three are negative in nature in that it's putting an end to something. Some, our sin will be finished, dealt with, and atoned for. Thus, 
God will get to the positive and bring in everlasting righteousness. He will seal both vision and profit to anoint. So a, a seal as an authenticate. That's one way of looking at it. Another way, but we won't go there here. To anoint a most holy place, as in the temple or possibly the place in the heavens where Jesus' sacrifice was fully accepted and finished by God. I think uh, uh, I could make a case for either of these because our agreement ends right here when we look at this group and we say, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, but people have questions. Were these blessings fulfilled totally when Jesus came? Or are they yet to be fulfilled? Were some fulfilled and some yet to come? Or were they all fulfilled or were, are they all in the future? Again, I could make a case for either one. And we're going to do that in home group this week. You're going to have opportunity to think about that. If you believe that all these blessings are ours in Christ, then you likely think that the 70 weeks Daniel is prophesying here in Daniel 9... <clears throat> were fulfilled by the end of the first century. If you think that these blessings are yet to come, then you likely think that 69 of the weeks, or 483 years, have already come to pass, but another seven-year period is yet to come. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Let's catch up in verses 25 to 27. We're going to read them all together, then go back and examine them Separately. Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. This could either be a royal edict or a prophetic word. Know from that moment <clears throat> the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks. It shall be built again with squares and moat. In other words, the city is going to be secure, but it's going to be in a troubled time. This is all good news to Daniel because the city had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. And the Lord is saying, okay, they're both going to be rebuilt, but it's not going to be easy. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So in other words, Jerusalem's going to be built back up in the temple, and then it's going to be taken down again. <clears throat> he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. It'll be devastating. And, there, and to the end there shall be War, no peace. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This is the, the prince. There's a good anointed one, and then there's a bad guy. The prince shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate <clears throat> until the decree, decreed end, is poured out on the desolator. 
All right, so I'm going to ask for three volunteers to come up and explain, if you would. I want to call your attention to the shortened version of the phrase in the last verse. This is my version. It's the way Jesus will say it in Matthew 24. <clears throat> the abominations that, or the abomination that makes desolate. We're going to see that term again in Daniel 11 when it is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. But don't even worry about that right now. Uh, it surfaces again in Matthew 24 where Jesus talks about this as a future activity, a future event, a future person. So Antiochus was 164 AD, BC, somewhere along in there. And Jesus, of course, was somewhere in AD 29, AD 30 when he's talking about, AD 30 probably when he was talking about the abomination of desolation that is yet to come. So he's surely warning his followers, Jesus was, that there are difficult times ahead. So we're going to take, because it, so much of, of Daniel 9 is in Matthew 24, we're going to take a week or two or three to go to Matthew 24 starting next week and, and Luke 21 and possibly even Mark 11 through 13. Just little snippets here and there. Um, <clears throat> it will be an eschatological excursus and I'll explain that next week if you're new. So please don't allow yourself to be frustrated with the slow pace in Daniel and for now at least the next few weeks in Matthew 24. The reason we're going through Daniel is an an attempt, if nothing else, to get an understanding of everything that is at stake going forward in life. In the verses that we have just read, the 70 weeks are divided into three sections of seven weeks. There is one period of seven weeks right up at the first. That's 49 years. A week equals a year, so 49 years. Then there are 62 weeks 434 years, and they're mentioned back-to-back -back in this text, so they could be combined. But then there's a space, and the last week seems to be a little separate from the others, and it's in two halves, so that's interesting about that. That's a seven-year period. So do you see, you begin to see how challenging this text is. Furthermore, when do these periods of time begin and end, or and also, are they literal or symbolic? I want to share three different theories about the 70-week period, and please know that there are many variations for each possibility, and you should know that these are not the three possibilities given in the ESV study Bible, so if you go home and say, yeah, I want to, I want to see that a little bit further, which again tells you there are so many different views, but I thought maybe these three views would sort of be a good overview of how people look at Daniel's 70 week, weeks. Before I, I share the three, here are some important dates for you to know. And again, you have those in your bulletin, uh, or if you didn't get it on the way in, you can get this on the way out, so you don't have to write. Um, for those of you who think that these years are literal 490 years. This is very important. Uh, these dates are going to be important. But 
you should know that there is also debate on whether these are 365-day years or 360 years. Once again, it's just layer on top of a layer. There isn't time, so don't ask, and I'm sure you weren't wanting to ask. Uh, I'm not going to go through these dates that you see on the screen, but you'll think about them a little bit, especially in home group. And, and, and by the way, going forward, you can access the home group notes. If you don't go to home group, you can access not only the questions, but the leader's notes toward the end of the week after a sermon is preached. So next um, Thursday, Friday, this coming Thursday and Friday, somewhere along in there, Thursday night or Friday, you'll be able to access these on our website in the sermon section or for now at least on Church Center. I, I, I want to say this right now to those of you, though, that are thinking how confusing this is. I promise I will do my absolute best going forward not to get bogged down in detail, even if there is a level of detail that is required going forward. We had to look at this text this morning. I wouldn't prefer to preach this this way. I could preach this a whole different way. And it would be far more nourishing to our souls. But the church is, I'm not going to say divided over this. But there are a lot of people who wouldn't dare think about going to a church that believes differently on Daniel 9 24 to 27 than they do. And at the very least, I want you to recognize that no matter what you believe about this, there are other people who have very well considered, thought out, prayed about positions about the end times. And it all comes back to here. So we need to know what's at stake here. And then we can make our decisions and go forward in the future with a lot less a struggle. So, and by the way, you, you also need to know that even though you might say, can't we just do something different? Can't we just stick to Jesus? There are a lot of people here who are very, very interested in this and want to know and would be very disappointed if we didn't go through it like, like that. Furthermore, we all need to at least to be exposed to this. So enough apologizing for the sermon and getting back to it. So here are three views of Daniel's 70 weeks with the acknowledgement that there are many variations sometimes for all these views. We'll begin with what we'll call the symbolic view of the 70 weeks. This comes from Ralph Davis, who has been much quoted in this series. I love the way Ralph Davis thinks and writes his love for the Lord. We'll call this one the symbolic view. He didn't, but I, that's what I'm calling it. The first seven weeks, according to Davis, describe a time or describes a time when hope returns. It begins either with a royal decree from Cyrus or Artaxerxes or a prophetic word that the people can return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The 62 weeks that follow comprise a time when life goes on. The city will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. But it's not easy. I would say anytime you're under the control of authoritarian ruler, that's a distressing time. This period goes to the time when the Messiah comes onto the scene. This last week is a time, though, 
when clouds gather. The Messiah is cut off and the temple is destroyed, according to this view, in A.D. 70. So Gabriel says, temple and the city are going up and then they're going to come down again. And by the way, Daniel 9 is the principal passage in the Old Testament that had the Jews looking for a Messiah. Daniel 9, Psalm 2. There are lots of others that we look back and say, oh, that's talking about Jesus. Um, And even the scholars, the Old Testament scholars, were getting to the place. And when we come to some of these dates, they may have started at a different time. The Jews were actually looking for a Messiah, but most of the scholars had worked it out that he would come later because they got all these dates sort of confused. And they certainly were not looking for the sort of Messiah that would come. They were looking for a conqueror, not someone to deal with sin. So the temple is going to be destroyed. This is bad news. Then in A.D. 135, the Jews revolted and the emperor Hadrian uh, either destroyed Jerusalem or at least drove the Jews out and turned Jerusalem into a pagan city. In the end, though, and this is a point that all three views agree on, in the end, God will destroy those who oppose him and seek and who seek to destroy his people. The second view is what we'll call the literal view. It's, this version is offered by Rodney Stortz. Uh, it lumps the first seven weeks and the 62 weeks together for a total of 69 weeks. And remember, a week equals a seven-year period, so basically a day per year. And Storch reckons that the 69 weeks began, oh, so that adds up, let me tell you this first, though, because I know you'll be really disappointed if I don't. That adds up, those 69 weeks, to 483 years. So he believes that the 69 weeks began in 457 B.C. when Artaxerxes I decreed that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. And then those 69 weeks, he thinks, ended 483 years later in A.D. 26 when Jesus' ministry began. So, again, confusing, I know. But you could say 458 B.C. when, um, excuse me, um, 5... 38 B.C., when Cyrus said you can go back to Jerusalem, you can use this one of 457. There's another one in 445. Uh, And all of these dates that are saying, people think, this is when the 70 years began. Now, if A.D. 26, when Jesus was baptized, marked the end of the 483 years, this view, the literal view, believes that three and a half years, that first half, was from Jesus' baptism to his crucifixion. And then the second three and a half years are from Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension until the church was dispersed from Jerusalem through persecution. And if you must say that these 490 years are decreed and it goes one after another, all one after, this view is for you. But... If this view is yours, then no promise of any 
or no thought, I shouldn't say promise, no warning about a tribulation to come. Case closed, if you believe the literal view. But it's still open for many, especially for those in the last group who hold to what we will call the futuristic view. The view I'm describing here is the view of Stephen Miller, who writes in the New American Commentary, a very fine commentary series. John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, and others would hold to this view, while D.A. Carson, Michael Horton, and others would, would lean in the other direction. In this view, the same as the last view, the 69 weeks begin with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 457 B.C. and conclude with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In this view, however, there is a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. You can look in the text and you can say, hey, a lot happens between the end of the 69th and the beginning of the 70th. The 70th week, which begins in this view after Jesus' crucifixion and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would happen 40 years afterwards, will be during the tribulation, which is yet future. This is the dispensational millennial view. And while it's a very thoughtful view, we need to ask again for all of these views, but especially for this one. Is it wise to put so much emphasis on such an obscure text? On the other hand, we're going to see the term abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, where Jesus is going to refer back to Daniel 9. So... There's more to learn. And so that concludes this lesson. And now I'm, under, I'm sure it's clear as mud to many of you. Let's look at Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And just we'll try to do the same layered thing. And hopefully this will clarify a few things. This is going to be brief. In verse 24, we get the sense that while Daniel's prayer for mercy was answered, there are still rough days ahead for God's people. How precious are these promises that the Messiah will deliver his people from sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. But there's no mention of a Messiah in verse 24. That's true, but there is in verse 25. The city and the, and the temple will be rebuilt and an anointed one the Messiah will come. The time between the rebuilding of the city and the temple is going to be difficult, but who doesn't live in difficult times? Well, Christians in America, not in comparison at least, to the Jews and our brothers and sisters in Christ who live under persecution and under foreign rulers. The point is, though, that God is good to his people even in severe trials. The Messiah will come to deal with sin. Then in verse 26, just as suddenly as the Messiah comes, he'll be cut off and left with nothing. I kept thinking, as I was looking at this text, I just kept thinking about the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. He had nothing. Even the father turned away from him. This is a very apt 
description of what happened to Jesus. The prince who is to come, who will destroy the city and the temple is a bad guy. Now, there are some people who say, oh no, that was all Jesus. He was doing away with the need for the temple. He was saying that this land is not important. So, all kinds of different interpretations of it. But for the most part, we recognize this guy is not a good guy. It's either Titus, the Roman general who destroyed the rebuilt temple in AD 70, or it's the future Antichrist. Again, more about this next week. By verse 27, I would guess that Daniel was rather discouraged. In this last half of the 70th week, God's people would once again find themselves under intense persecution. Whether you think that this was occurring, this was to occur in the first century or is yet to come in the tribulation, we need to all just agree to disagree. I've said this before, but if you are amillennial, you're postmillennial in your views, you know how many premillennialists there are in our church. If you're premillennial, if you lean that way, you have no idea how many of the others are. I do, but you have no idea how many people disagree with your interpretation of, of end times, regardless of what you believe. And remember, this is a third tier, third tier theological issue. It's not one over which to break fellowship. Again, one of my desires in being this complex on this message is for us to recognize that there are other people who are just as godly as we are, just as committed to study, who believe differently. So, let's see where we go next week in Matthew 24. And when I say that, I really mean it. I mean, I, I want to I want to see where we go. I have an idea of what I believe, but I'm not 100% sure. It's being tweaked all along this study. So we'll find out next week. For now, it's enough for us to know that God has decreed an end to the desolator. Satan is in Yahweh's sights, and Yahweh never misses. And so that we don't leave here in a daze, here are four application points with brief comments about each, beginning with God responded favorably to Daniel's confession of sin, and he will hear your confession as well. My goodness, one of our biggest problems as believers is that we fail to confess our sin. That's one of the beauties of this table that we come to twice a month where we are individually and corporately confessing our sins before the Lord. Don't make your prayers only about confession. Don't be caught up feeling so guilty. I, I've lived a good bit of my life with guilt as my constant companion. And I know a lot of you do too. 
But when we confess our sins, he has promised. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second, Gabriel came to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice, which is 3 p.m., which is about the time of day that Jesus died for sinners. That's a pretty interesting connection, isn't it? Biblically directed spiritual routines are vital to your spiritual well-being. So are there spiritual disciplines to which you were committed like Bible reading and prayer and others. By the way, that, that's one of the great benefits of reading the Bible through every year. Because you are every day or maybe you're catching up or getting a little bit of a head. But almost every day, you're in the Word. You're communing with God. You're hearing from God, learning from God. And every year, you're seeing stuff that you've never seen before, even though you've read it dozens of times. What about your church attendance? And I'm not talking about on online unless it's necessary. There may be a reason that you have to watch online. But are you gathering with God's people also at home group? Here is what I know my, about myself. I've had periods of time where I've been committed to the point of checking them off every day. I've done this, this, and this. And then I've had times where I've said, you know, I'm just going to let love motivate me to spend time in the Word and to pray. And I find that I just don't have as much love as I surely hope that I would have. And that when I am committed to spiritual blessings, I do better in every part of my life. And have you ever noticed that discipline in one area carries over to other areas of your life and a lack of discipline in one area of your life carries over to other areas of your life? Liturgy, routine, our lives are greatly benefited and helped when we are committed to spiritual disciplines. Third, God keeps his promises, and his promises in Jesus are always, yes, that's the way I would have loved to have preached this sermon today, just Point to Jesus. That's what this, the text does. But it was important that we understand all of this other stuff. But do, never, <clears throat> never forget that the primary focus of Scripture is Jesus. The Pharisees were berating him, accusing him. And he says, search the Scriptures. You think because you know the Scripture that you have eternal life. But you've missed the point. They are, they are, which, testif they are they which testify of me. He was saying, if you were really in the word, <clears throat> then you'd know who I am. Daniel and the Jewish people had come through extreme suffering. And while there was good news from Gabriel, he also brought news that the people would suffer more. But that God would be with them and would be victorious over their enemies. And if, if, if that was true for the Jewish people, it's even more so for us Jews and Gentiles alike who believe in Jesus. And that leads us to the last point. In the end, the one who opposes God and his people will be destroyed. 
And when that happens, we will all say, hallelujah. Now, there may be a little cognitive dissonance for you with this last point. Because we recognize that as believers, we are called to love our enemies, to forgive our enemies. Indeed, are we ever more like Jesus than when we are forgiving and loving our enemies. It is a privilege to commune with Jesus in a very special way as we do that. So that person this week that has not only gotten on your last nerve, but has done despicable things, and you feel righteous in your judgment of them, that person That's the one you need to forgive. That's the one you need to love like Jesus loved you. The day is going to come, though, when all the battles have been fought and the war is won by Jesus. And when that day comes, we will be glorified and we will see exactly as he sees And when Jesus defeats his enemies, destroys his enemies, those who opposed him and those who opposed the people of God, then we'll cheer just like our team won in overtime in the Super Bowl. Probably wasn't most of your team. Everybody I heard was pulling for San Francisco. So was I. But we're going to be going crazy. When Jesus does that, because we will see just like he sees. More than anything, we will especially rejoice that Jesus suffered so that we might be declared just or justified by the Father. And on that day, we will say, hallelujah, amen. And remember, as we study eschatology, With all we don't know, we know three things. Jesus is coming again. We hope it's soon. And we better be ready. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and gracious God. And Lord, I know that there are many today who are suffering in ways that most of us can't even imagine. And they're suffering in all kinds of different ways, physically, emotionally, relationally. But we know that Jesus is on the throne sitting at the right hand of his Father, who has decreed all things. But we know that in Jesus, not only will our suffering come to an end, but it will be meaningful in ways that we cannot imagine. If the suffering is is unimaginable, the glory that will be revealed is even more so. We believe this by faith. And we only believe it because the Holy Spirit has revealed truth to us. 
and encourages us and sustains us in this way. So dear Father, may we go from this place committed to love you and serve you and to long for Jesus to return. Even so, come Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we offer these prayers. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.